I'm Mindy Bear, and you are listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast by Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. I'm your host, Robert Miller. This podcast is for all you dreamers out there. Everyone has a dream. Mine was music. It took me a long time, but finally, I pursued my dream to success. I want to help you to follow and succeed at your dream. I'm going to feature others on this podcast who successfully follow their dream just like today's guest. And remember, each episode of the podcast will start with a different song of mine that's played underneath the introduction. In the intro to this episode, you heard a bit of my song called New York City Groove. I chose this song because it's got that New York City music groove, and my guest today is New York rock and roll royalty. I'll tell you more about the song and you'll hear the entire song at the end of this episode. Epi Epstein is the owner and the face of my father's place, one of the most historic rock and roll venues in the country. The club originally opened on Memorial Day 1971 with a concert by Richie Havens, and the club would go on to influence music for decades to come. Between 1971 and 1987, my father's place presented an unmatched and unforgettable range of talent in rock, jazz, fusion, country, punk, soul, reggae, folk, and comedy. The club was a launching pad for a number of aspiring artists, including Madonna, Bruce Springsteen, and Aerosmith, plus Many young comedians got started there, like Billy Crystal, Eddie Murphy, Andy Kaufman. After a long absence, which I'm sure Epi will discuss, he reopened my father's place in 2018 in the Roslyn Hotel in Roslyn, New York. Unfortunately, it's been closed now due to COVID, but I'm sure he plans to reopen the club as soon as he can. My band, Project Grand Slam, played our last pre-COVID gig there in February 2020. And I can attest to the fact that the club is spectacular. So, Epi, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Hello, everyone. You are a legend on Long Island. Tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get started in rock and roll? What was your dream when you were young? I was uh, 13 or 12. I was watching Ricky Nelson play with a whole bunch of girls around him on the Nelson family. I said, I want to do that. <laughs> and um, from there, I had numerous bands where I played guitar and bass. And we played up in the Bosch set, Bosch Belt when I was 13, 14. Went away to college and uh, got more involved in music with between uh, school and working in a club and uh, boutiques. and. Uh, Came that found out that I had really good managerial skills, 
came home to Roslyn, opened up a boutique, and I wanted to open a coffee house in the back. And actually, my dream, if you're talking about dreams, my dream was to turn Roslyn into Harvard Square, Cambridge. But uh, <laughs> I forgot that we didn't have Harvard University or MIT in the backyard. But uh, we did the best we could. And we built a, built a little uh, environment, uh, which I called for my, my thesis for my MA, which is building a cultural milieu in an upper middle class nouveau riche ghetto. Now, you picked Roslyn, which was not the most obvious place in the world for a rock and roll venue. Why? Because I was really, I was really floored. I was really taken by the antiquity. Uh, the fact you get off the expressway or the northern, or the northern state, go up Roslyn Road, go down this hill into a valley, and you have been transported into another place. Because you had 700 buildings built in the 16, 1700s, wooden structured buildings that had been preserved. Why I didn't know at the time. And uh, everything about it was like a storybook on the harbor, on the, on the Roslyn Harbor. So it just felt a mile and a half away from the expressway. This would be a good place to make camp. I was 20 years old when I came up with that. For people that are unfamiliar with the geography that we're talking about, this is a suburb of, of New York City on Long Island, about halfway out, maybe a little less than halfway out onto Long Island. The major artery that feeds this area is the Long Island Expressway, which some people call the world's largest parking lot because it's bumper to bumper so often. But Epi picked this area called Roslyn, which is right on the water on the northern shore of Long Island. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an enclave for middle class and upper middle class people. You wouldn't think of it as a rock and roll enclave like you would Greenwich Village, right? Correct. It was all wealthy people living in an area that there were estates, the Blue Bloods from times before. As those estates got broken up, they turned into developments as our parents came back from World War II going from like a starter house in Levittown to like a maybe a bigger house in a nice community. So it was all upper middle class community. Okay. So you got to go back a little bit further. Did you come from a musical family? Were your parents musicians? No, I didn't. I did not. My father loved classical music, but no one played an instrument. And what got you into music? As I told you before, I was watching TV and looking at Ricky Nelson and Elvis Presley. I, I, I got a guitar. I got some guitar lessons. I put a band together. I was 12, 13 years old. <laughs> and one band to another band to another band. I would do the leadership for the band, booking the dates up in the, in the, in the Porsche belt. And uh, one thing led to another. And when it was time, I worked in a club in Boston. And uh, I learned a little bit. And I came home after managing my, my head shop, which was, never went across the street from John Fisherman, it was time to try to do music. Now, the club that you, you opened uh, or that you worked at in Boston, what was that called? It was called the, the, the I thought it was called the ACK, but it was, I found out later it was the Environmental Arc. Environmental Arc. Everyone called it, they all called it the ACK. <laughs> 
I lived in Boston for a long time. And the big club that I remember in Boston was called the Boston Tea Party, which was right across the street from Fenway Park. That's right. So across the street from Fenway Park was the Environmental Act, which later was bought by Don Moore, and it was turned into the Tea Party. The, the Boston Tea Party was originally in a shul, which was downtown Boston in the, on Washington Street. Wow. So I was there a little earlier than you. I was there going to school, going to a, a Bryant Stratton College and taking courses at Berkeley School of Music. My dormitory was 150 Massachusetts Avenue, which was used by both schools. And they were owned by the same company. So we could go back and forth from business, business, um, the business school back to the music school, which I did. And the boutique I worked in was right next to the Berkeley Performing Center. It was in the same building. Ma- the the, the uh, 150 Mass F was the Sheraton Biltmore Hotel built in 1922. One of those beautiful big hotels built in the early days. And so uh, that's where my whole world began in 1967. When, when we were in Boston, you were there later. Right? I was there from 68 until the middle 1970s. But when I was there, again, it was they had the Boston Tea Party. There was another dive that was located in Kenmore Square called the Psychedelic Supermarket. I don't know if you remember that, but it was a dungeon, okay? Just a lot that, of cement that was walls. Act, it was actually one of the leading clubs of the 60s, in the early 60s. And, you know, it was, by the time you got there, it was a dive. <laughs> the, the one claim to fame that I remember is that my roommate and I went into the Psychedelic Supermarket one weeknight probably in 1968. And there was this kid playing guitar and singing that was sitting on a stool and his name was James Taylor. And there were maybe three of us in the place at the time. So that's one of those memories you don't forget. Well, this is why there were, there were these great little clubs in, in Boston uh, and Cambridge, because it was a place where people could start. What we had in Boston that no one else had in the country was WBCN. And that was the granddaddy of all alternative radio. You should talk about that a little bit. Yes. I remember WBCN. Absolutely. I was on the radio at college. It was an AM station. But WBCN was, as you said, the big FM station at the time. And uh, that became the, 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 the architectural plan for every album-orientated radio station to come afterwards. BCN started in early days with a transformer, a transmitter that they borrowed from the from the army it was used during the Korean War. So it was really an early on stereo device. And, and it just there was so many bands breaking in Boston at that time. It was, it was the center of the universe, which is why when I came home I wanted to make another uh, a, a, another universe like that in Boston. You know, but of course didn't have BCN. But you did have another radio station that you hooked up with, WLIR. Tell us about that. Well, let me go backwards one more time uh, first so you understand. When I couldn't open up a little coffee house at my my boutique because the village of Roswell wouldn't let me because I painted my boutique purple and yellow, they wouldn't let me do that. I went to this bowling alley around the block that was struggling. And I said, if I... Fill your place up on the worst night of the year where you give me a 49% of your club for a dollar. And so J. Brian Aloysius Lenahan said, well, that's easy. 
New Year's Day, Christmas Day, Easter, uh, Labor Day, Memorial Day. So we picked one of those dates. And as you said prior, Richie Havens came and did us a favor and played a year after he played at Woodstock. So that was my only contact that I had. <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing after that. I'd call agents up. They'd all laugh and hang up on me. I couldn't buy any talent because I was not in the, the circle of friends that you could buy talent. And so that's when I went to LAR. I bought some time. And the radio station was an agent stereo signal. It's the first radio license issued by the FCC in 1953 or four. First stereo broadcasting system to go on, actually. Even before BCN, uh, WLIR was broadcasting uh, in stereo. But uh, it was they were, they were really on their way to do it. So I bought some time, and I started trying to organize a station with tools that I had learned from all of my my friends that taught me at BCN. And um, at that point, the sales manager came into to where I was trying to book talent, and uh, he said, you know, if you want, uh, I know you talked about doing a live radio broadcast like they did in the olden days in the hotels in the 20s and 30s. Why don't we... Go have a meeting with Dr. Pepper. So I went with him to meet Dr. Pepper. Dr. Pepper was a new beverage. And they were going to give us $500 a week. So we made a deal to go to a recording studio around the block from the radio station in Hampstead and put in a set of stereo lines, a 16 KC lines for $90. And then I went back to the record companies and the agents and said, we now have a position where we can give you an hour's worth of radio promotion if you play my club on the weekends so that had a little bit of an angle still had baby acts just like james Dell was a baby act when you saw him at the psychedelic supermarket but to, but but a good number of those acts would become superstars in the near future and so we started the first weekly live radio broadcast in the country on a rock station and so the rest is history and tell us about the beginning of the club. You, you had Richie Havens as your first act there. How did right. it grow from there? Who were some of the other there acts? There was no growing. I didn't know what I was doing. I couldn't <laughs> get any acts. We sat there with bands that were doing what we call hootenannies. We'd have everyone get up and play guitar. And we'd once in a while, get lucky. My cousin Richie was my partner in the, in the head shop. Went to Pratt University, and he, his roommate in college did a design for an album cover for Buzzy Linhart. And so he was able to get us through the back door, Buzzy Linhart, to play, which was actually the first sold-out show we had after Richie Havens. But it was about three months later. Okay. And uh, it took a little while, but thanks to the the star-making machinery at the time and the record companies all signing everyone for an LP deal, there was, there was a, a, a an allotment of bands that could come and play and that we could... Uh, Put in the club on that weekend. So I'd get on the mic at Ultrasonic Studios and say, this is an act that hopefully you'll be seeing real soon at the Coliseum. He played in a band. I called the Hassles not too long ago. But uh, a big hand please for Billy Joel. And Billy would play the piano and, and tell jokes. I remember when the Hassles put out a song called You Got Me Humming. What a great song. That was. It, it was a good song. 
I'm always waiting for him to play it in one of his Madison Square Garden concerts. I don't think he's going to do that. I, I've asked him on occasion. That was his first single, I believe. So tell us about some of the other great acts that you had at the venue. Well, you know, I think you've talked about a lot of them. I mean, anyone, anyone aside from Bob Marley, uh, reggae played there. Uh, 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 so we were really the, the architects of bringing reggae into America. And uh, that included everyone. So a few people were reggae enthusiasts. You name the act, they played there. Twin Third World, Big Youth, Reggae Eyes Extended Brown. Third world. I mean, you know, any act that did get a record, walking a peer record deal in America, was recognized, played in my college course. Other than Bob Marley, even though Bob was my friend, he was planning on playing there and then he got canceled. Mm. But uh, that's a whole other story. Uh, other acts that played that, well, you know, Eddie, uh, Eddie Murphy did a comedy night. With, you know, there was no comedy clubs on Long Island yet. So I took the LIR staff and we all decided we were going to do a comedy night like they had. The one comedy club in New York, the Improvisation. And so all these comics would leave and go, leave Long Island go to the Improvisation and do their shit. So we said, why don't we do a Tuesday night called Long Island Ha So on the way into the city, these guys would come and they do it. And we promoted it on LIR. The LIR staff came with the guys. And Eddie Murphy was 16 years old. And uh, he got off stage. And I said to him, Eddie, you know, we already have a Richard Pryor. There's no reason to be so filthy on stage. He said, well, Epi, fuck you and fuck Richard Pryor. <laughs> that was the first and the last time I talked to Eddie Pryor. But he did become as big as he did, doing what he did. But his comedy is still as filthy as it was then. And he's about to get ready to stand up again. Mm. So if you want to hear filthy comedy, Eddie will be out soon. But I think he is brilliant. Just I don't like his comedy, but uh, Eddie teamed up with a bunch of local comics. That did, they did a, a thing called uh, Identical Triplets, which became sort of a big Long Island deal. It was uh, two two white comics and him in the middle, and it was cute. Uh, George Carlin was having a drug problem and an alcohol problem. It couldn't work anywhere. No one would hire him, so we did because we were looking for acts. And uh, George would play every couple of months. He'd play. For a little amount of money, and um, at one point we uh, tied him up in, in uh, one of the houses in Roslyn, and we helped him kick out. <laughs> wow. But uh, he became my friend for a long time before. And, and even when my father's place closed in 1987, George Carlin would still call me and say, "Ah, this is Officer Carlin. You didn't make it into parole. We're going to call you back in the can." You know, because <laughs> George was a police officer. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, in the Bronx. Uh, but he'd also, after his beat, he'd get go to a spoon of speed and read War and Peace. And as he said, his comedy routine, he didn't remember any of it. He just remember reading reading the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> he was a brilliant, brilliant comedian. Robert Klein was just finishing up as a school teacher, and he was starting his comedy. He'd come in and uh, built 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 uh, a nice little franchise for himself. Wow. Well, I have one more. Yeah. There was there was a a group of improvisationalists from Hofstra University. They were called Three Is Company. But this was two and a half, three years before the TV show. We had we had two girls and a guy, and it was gay. But um, I had asked Buddy Mora, who was managing 
Martin Mull, and Martin managing his company, was Rollins and Chaffee. They managed Woody Allen. They ma- they managed some other very big people. And um, I said, buddy, would you come over and watch this guy in the middle? He outshines the other two guys, but, he, but he's really very sharp and very on edge. And so Buddy was managing Robert Klein at the time, so we had a relationship. So Buddy Moore came out, and he watches these three guys. And the guy in the middle was Billy Crystal. But he went backstage after the show. He sat with Billy for an hour and a half. They came out, and they he, and, and Buddy said, the Apple, I'm now representing Billy Crystal. That was the beginning of Billy Crystal. Wow. So that's the last comment. Great story. Tell us, uh, you have a Springsteen story. Tell us about that. Um, my partner, Jay Brian Aloysius Lenahan, who ran the bowling alley and was failing with it. We became partners. I gave him a new lease on life at 76 years old. So he married a widow. And the widow had a, a nephew named Michael. And, and uh, Michael managed a band called an artist named Bruce Springsteen. Lived in Old West. And so Jay, I didn't know who Michael was. And um, Jay said, Ah, McGillicuddy, can you give Dorothy's nephew's artist a shot? Put him in with someone. So you'll appreciate this. I gave Michael uh, the list of all the acts that I booked in 73. And uh, one of them was Paul Winter's concert. And so he said, Oh, that'll be perfect. I said, Well, what does Bruce Springsteen do? He said, Bruce Springsteen plays guitar. He sings like Bob Dylan. I guess that'll be okay to have in front of a, a jazz band with a lot of bells and chimes. I said, yeah, it'll be great. And so I book it, I advertise it. It's Bruce Springsteen's first show. He doesn't have a record out, but he does come in a tour bus with maybe 60 or 50 kids, all drunk because they're drinking on the bus from Asbury Park. They get out there and then Paul Winter here can do a sound check. And Paul says to me, we'll play one show. We'll open for them. You'll pay us in full, and we'll leave. And Paul Winter did not talk to me until last year. He was so angry. Wow. <laughs> that was 1973. That was the first live radio broadcast to be broadcasted from the nightclub because mm-hmm. Ultrasonic Studios was getting too busy with all bands that needed to get performed. Such interesting stories. Okay, let's fast forward. The club closed down in 1987, but you managed to reopen it, I think, in 2018. What were you doing in the interim? Number one, the club did not reopen. The club closed. The village of Brazen made the owners of the building rip down one-third of the building as if to take a golden stake and hammer it into the chest of the vampire. There is a wailing wall behind the club, which you can see that 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 structural wall. The building was built in, in 1919. It was a Ford dealership, so it had that old-style cemented wall. It's still there. The guys that did the demolition, they couldn't face the fact that they were cutting the whole wall down, so they left part of it. In the, the kids today call it the wailing wall. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I couldn't use that club. That was 1987. I spent a half a million dollars, exhausted whatever money I had, trying to save the club, and I couldn't. So I was in a very bad, bad mental state of affairs. Even though I kept busy and I did not become a drug addict or an alcoholic, many of the people that do what I do in the head country were shocked that I didn't kill myself. Very frustrating. 
So I kept paying the rent, the taxes, and the insurance on the building from 1987 to 1989. It was very expensive. It, it was about $18,000, $19,000 a month. It was, it was nuts in those days. It was a lot of money. I always wanted to build another club, but I had this mental condition that the club had to be in Roswell because my rights were taken away from me because a shopping center developer group that owned all the big real, uh, regional shopping centers in Long Island wanted to build one in Roswell. So my job became to stop, stop, and shop, stop Edwards, and stop the regional shopping centers they wanted to build in the village of Roswell. They came in and they bought property up all along that wasn't just me. But, you know, I took it personally. And so Diane's Bakery, which was next door to the club, Diane used to bake in my house. She was a little runaway. She did pretty good for herself. She went to the Culinary Institute, learned how to bake, and her family opened up a bakery, which I was supposed to be partners with. But unfortunately, I was too mentally disrupted to do anything. That's probably the most successful company on Long Island. You really should met, interview her sometime because they sell a cookie for $5. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm digressing. So this, the new place that opened, only open because of supply and demand to the ever-popular uh, adults, geriatric patients that miss the club. So some of my friends invested. Some of my, my partner, Alex Ewan from Little Stevens office, we went out and found a piece of real estate. But it was a horrible deal, and I'm suffering from it because we are invited guests at the hotel. And... Uh, we give the hotel 90% of the food and the liquor that's made to keep 10. It's only 180 seats. So as nice as you say the club is, I can't really make any money out of it because I can't buy any major talent with 180 seats. So here's lies, lies the problem. And the people that own the hotel are novices. They don't know about hospitality. And they have done a piss poor job of, of trying to serve food and liquor. And, and I really don't feel happy. I do feel happy that there was a pandemic because it got, it got me to put my head back on my shoulders. When you met me and you played the club, I was a mess. You know, I mean, I, since the club closed, I got my head back on. And I really have second thoughts about going into the room and doing shows if the hotel owners continue to want to serve food and liquor. Not only in my room, but in the other room, which is the restaurant. They have failed miserably. And uh, I will continue to use the room and rent it to do TV. We are about to do a promotional shoot for Guitar Centers on Tuesday with Joan Jett and Miss Jett. And uh, we are doing a series of pay-per-views, including one on the, on the I think it's May 20th, with J uh, Jimmy Webb, uh, with a company called Beeps. Beeps is the members of Good a good Charlotte. They've taken their instruments down and they started a streaming platform two, two years ago. And they are very good at what they do. And they stream on a global basis uh, with all these professionals that were out of work because of that. Level. So they have all these publicists from Portland to San Francisco. They go ahead and promote the dates internationally for you. They charge 15 bucks. You sit home in the ball, popcorn in the bottom. And you watch a band that you can't see because everyone's sick. It's not going to last forever. Eventually, people are going to be ready to go back out. 
but I think we we still have till September. I really. What do you see for yourself then when this COVID uh, pandemic is over? I'm already I've already booked some shows in an alternative club. It's on in Amityville on Route One Ten. It's called the Warehouse. It's a little bigger than my boss was. It holds three four hundred people. I'm doing a show there on September twelfth with a band called Modern English, which we played on WLIR. They have a big song that you kids know called I Stop the World and Melt With You. It's called Melt With You. All right? You see the difference, and it's getting better. All right, anyway. So, and I'm also doing a Scottish punk band, which was very big on LAR, called APB. That will be the two Thursdays after that in the month of September. So I've already planned to bring shows outside of the ballroom. I will continue to do pay-per-view in the ballroom, but I don't know whether I'm going to do live shows there unless the hotel will make some kind of a, a consideration with my board of directors and straighten things out because I'm just, I was just miserable with that for those two years. That's too bad. Epi, you know, this is a podcast that's called Follow Your Dream, and it's all about trying to inspire and motivate people that have a dream but have not yet followed it for whatever reason to get on the dream track and to try and pursue and succeed at their dream. So I ask all of my guests, please tell all the dreamers out there what advice that you would give to them. I'm 73 years old. I opened my father's place when I was 22. That was my dream, and I haven't stopped trying to do that. In all the years my father's place was closed from 87 to a few years ago, I was trying to open the club up. couldn't find a place to rise. I was so romantically involved with the problem because they closed me up. Like Bridge of the River Kwai. Same exact situation. This guy wanted to build his bridge, wanted his guys to be healthy and safe from the war. But what he was doing was, by building that bridge, was, was making it easier for the Japanese destroy what was left of Thailand. So it's probably one of the greatest movies in the world. And, and that was me building my bridge. And we did. And uh, I will continue to continue building my bridge. If it's not in Rosalind, it may be somewhere else. But there has to be a place where young people like Rich, like, like James Taylor, who you saw at the psychedelic supermarket, have a pay, place to play in front of people and work their art. And I will continue to do that. And everyone else should do the same thing if you watch it. Mm-hmm. No matter what it is that you should do, what you do, you should follow your dream. I'm, I'm 100% for that. Good for you. I want to thank you, Epi. This is Epi Epstein, who has been my guest on the show. You've been listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. I'm your host, Robert Miller. Remember to get your complimentary dream roadmap where I lay out my five steps to pursue and succeed at your dream just by going to followyourdreampodcast.com slash dream roadmap. Again, that's followyourdreampodcast.com slash dream roadmap. And feel free to email me at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. All of my music is available at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. And if you liked what you heard today, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. And now 
I'm going to play for you the entire song that we played a bit of at the beginning of this episode. It's called New York City Groove. I wrote the melody for this song over 20 years ago, but it got lost and I totally forgot about it. Luckily, I found a cassette player with a rehearsal version of the song in a boom box that had been stowed away in a closet. If you remember boom boxes. And it became the first vocal song recorded by my band Project Grand Slam after I reorganized the band in 2015. New York City Groove is on our Made in New York album. There are actually two versions of the song. One, a vocal version that you're going to hear where the singer is a lady named Kat Show, who was a semi-finalist on The Voice. And the other is an instrumental version. So I hope you enjoy it and thank you again for listening and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com and you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. Puts me right.